Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. This is our last week in the series on the Beatitudes that we're calling Family Rhythms because the Beatitudes reflect the values of God. And the values of God are lived out every day in rhythms. Rhythms reflect the family we want to be. So Jesus walks and talks and shares and gives a picture of the family he's creating as we press into God. And so this morning we have two goals like every Sunday morning. We want to know more about God and we want to experience God. We open the scriptures to know God because we can never get to the end of who God is. His goodness will never come to completion and nobody will ever get on a stage anywhere and say, I've done it, I know all there is to know about God. But two, if we just know God and we don't experience God, then knowledge is cold. If we just experience without knowledge, then it's shallow. And so we come together because God can be known because he is here and he is present in our lives. We know and experience it's a two-way street, and so we're going to spend some time, like we always do, just praying. I'll ask you to pray to yourself if you're comfortable, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, might stir up the affections in you for God, that you might learn something about the goodness of God, because the Spirit is active through the Scripture that teaches us about the character of God, and that we might leave this place more excited for Jesus than when we came in. So let's pray together. God, I'm thankful that we can gather here this morning and learn about the goodness of the God that we serve and, and Jesus that we follow. God, I pray as we open the scriptures that you teach us this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you bring about change in our life through what we learned today. I pray, God, because I know that you are active in our world, that you show us what this looks like in our families and in our communities and in our jobs. I pray, if you're comfortable, I'd, I'd ask that you would pray for um, just for yourself this morning that you would ask the Holy Spirit to make the word come alive and to teach you that you might know more and be more excited about following Jesus after we get done with our time together. And then I'd ask that you pray for me, that God might use my words to be edifying and encouraging and that God might use our time together and use this message today to reveal more of the hope that we have in Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Matthew 5, we are in verse 10 this week. And as we close out the Beatitudes, it's important to know that each week the Beatitudes are building towards something. They're building towards something. And so we started with this idea of poor in spirit. The way that you get to know God is by recognizing that you need God. It's a basic fundamental principle in the family of God. I always need him. And then it builds from there. And when you need God, you recognize how badly your sin was to God in the first place and the destruction that it causes in our world all over the place. And so we need God and we are sad that we realize that we need God in the first place. And that leads us to places like mercy and hunger and thirsting for God's good, not our own good. That leads us to places like meekness, not using power for our good, but for the good of others. That leads us to places like last week when it says, blessed are the peacemakers. So it builds and paints this picture of the family of God living out the rhythms of God or the values of God in our world. And it builds up to last week where it said, and as you live those out, here's what's going to happen. You're going to bring God's good ways to the people in and around your life. 
They're going to see that God is good. And what he called you to do was not simply to like peace. This was the big idea from last week, to be a peace creator in your world. So be aggressive about living out the ways of Jesus in your world. He said, don't just like it on the couch. Don't just comment on Facebook, but actually bring peace to all the situations that you encounter as a follower of Jesus. That's what Jesus did. And we define peace as reconciliation. And reconciliation is taking something that was broken and making it whole again. This idea that as we live out God's good ways in God's world as he designed it, it will lead towards good things because God is making the broken whole. That's our job as peacemakers, man. That is a rah, rah, go get a message. That is a yes, I'm on fire for Jesus message. Here's the problem. is not all attempts at reconciliation succeed. And we find a paradox in the scriptures because how Jesus ends his rhythms, how Jesus ends his talk on family is it's building towards your job to do this. And the last one he says is, oh yeah, and when you do it, people might not take it well. But I thought that if I lived out God's good ways and God's good design to the world that he created, people should respond with peace. But it doesn't always work that way. Why? Because the world is broken. So yesterday I was talking to a friend of mine who moved back from Chicago after three or four years. And he and his wife and their kid moved back to Dallas. And we were talking about Chicago because I said, do you miss it? And he said, yeah, kind of. And I said, do you know what's about to happen in Chicago? He said, yes, yes, I do, right? So if you've never been to Chicago in the winter, don't. But what happens in Chicago, and I love that city, lived there for seven years. What happens is the sun goes away to die. That's just the best way to say it, right? It it goes away. I didn't know what that meant being from Texas. Literally, you see this, you see the sun. This isn't like it's hidden behind and I get glimpses. You only see the sun in Chicago in the winter two out of every seven days. Two out of every seven days. My first year up there, and I've shared this before, my roommate and I in college, he's from Texas as well, uh, we got excited for winter, but we also missed summer. And then it started getting dark and gray all the time. And you'd leave a three o'clock class that lasted till five and it'd already be dark and gray. And you're like, wow, this is depressing. And then finally, one morning we woke up and the sun was shining, right? It was beautiful. And I said, oh my gosh, Ty, the sun is out. So I threw on shorts and a t-shirt and I walked outside because the sun has one job. It warms things. And I walked outside and it was like 30 degrees with a wind chill in the mid-20s. And I think I yelled out loud, the sun is broken, everybody. Somebody broke the sun because it wasn't doing its job. And actually, talk about family rhythms because they reflect what we value. Every year on the first snow, Ty and I would, no matter what day it was, we just wouldn't go to classes all day and we'd stay inside out of the power for the fact that we loved the sun, you know? So my point with that whole story is that sometimes if we live out the ways of God in God's world, it doesn't end in good ways because the world is broken. And we think it should work, but it doesn't. And that's the hard part. Because Jesus comes in, he says, live like this, this is my world, this is good, but it's not always going to end like you think it's going to end. It's why Jesus can say, I came to bring peace, but at the same time he says, for example, in Luke 12, do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. He says in a verse later, they, families will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. It's this idea, this paradox we live in that As Christians, our goal is to create places of peace, but it doesn't always work out that way. And instead of peace, what we find is persecution. In the first century world, when he said, I came to bring peace, but then also it might divide your families, 
That was the tightest social unit. To divide a family was basically like you're being killed off from that family. It's still the way they practice religion. And so when he says that it might break up your family, that is not a peaceful message. It's one that brings immense persecution as your family turns their back on you. And so we live in this tension of these good ways that God designed in his world, but it doesn't always end up the way that we think it should. Actually, one author that I read this week said it like this. Of Christians, you can hate them or love them, but you can't ignore them. Why do white Christians confront others with the reality of God? These people must be crowned or crucified because they are either mighty right or mighty wrong. So Jesus understood that was going to happen when we bring a message of peace. And he understood it's going to go one way or the other. And I want it to be peace, but it doesn't always end up that way. And so he ends his talk on his family values and says, you know, it's going to be just as much of a rhythm as peace. Blessed are those of you who are persecuted. That was a tough message to preach. And as he gets into it, he's going to kind of tease out what persecution means. But if you're sitting there as a first century Jew... You had a relationship with persecution, or you, you thought of persecution in kind of a karmic way. And not just a Jew, in that culture overall, they really believed in this I reap what I sow principle. If something bad happens to you, whether it be you from someone else or just you in general, it's a you problem. One plus one is always two. The universe is getting back at you. We see it in Acts 28. This is Paul as he's traveling around talking about Jesus and getting beat up for it. He has a shipwreck and it says this in verse 4. When the local people saw, these are the Gentiles, the non-believers in God of the Old Testament... When they saw the creature, he, he put his hand into a fire and a viper came out and bit him, right? Side note, snakes are always evil. A viper came out and bit him. And it says, as they saw the creature hanging from Paul's hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. <laughs> I love it. He got bit by a snake. He must have killed somebody. And it says, although he has escaped the sea, justice herself has not allowed him to live. And he actually does live and they start praising the God that he follows there because the viper didn't kill him. But it's this cause and effect relationship. You got bit by a snake. You must have done something to deserve the persecution Mother Earth is giving you. We don't just see it with the Gentiles. We see it with the Jews as well. People that knew God, the God of the Old Testament. In John chapter 9, the disciples are walking with Jesus. And they come across a blind man. His disciples asked him, verse 2, Rabbi, who committed the sin that caused this man to be born blind? This man or his parents? It's this idea that even in the Old Testament, in the first century, whether you're Jewish or Gentile, they had a cause and effect relationship with persecution. If you're persecuted, whether it be by someone else or by the world at large, it's because you did something to deserve it, right? So I really want to ask the question, why does persecution exist? If we're supposed to live out God's good ways and God's good worlds and it's supposed to lead towards reconciliation or peace, why does it always work out that way? Why does it seem like sometimes conflict comes when we try to bring peace in certain situations? And John 3 says it really well. It says in John 3.20, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So if we live out the ways of Jesus, what's going to happen is we're going to cha challenge the value system that's intrinsic to the world we live in, and the world is broken. 
So we see it happen in Luke 16, for example. So Jesus is talking about money with the Pharisees, and he says this. It's a popular verse. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. So he's looking at the Pharisees saying, you can't have two sovereigns. You can't have two gods here. Take money away. He's exposing what they really value. He's saying, my family doesn't value that. It values something else. And by showing you what my family values, I'm exposing what you value. And when they were brought to that proposition, they responded in the way that you respond when what you value gets challenged. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and ridiculed him, first and foremost, as the family of God. When we live out the ways of God, we expose the value of others. Because we're saying this is what we value. And, and here's the deal. At first, initially, it doesn't seem threatening, but it really is. Because value at its core, um, value at its core, if we value different things, it is in some ways a loss of control. So in a power-centric world that valued privilege and power and possessions, Jesus comes in and said, instead, we're going to value meekness, poverty, and mercy. And make no mistake about it, a culture where might is right, mercy is a threat. It is. Because they couldn't control Jesus or his followers anymore. It's kind of like my, my buddy has a two-year-old, two and a half, and he just started doing the timeout thing. This two-year-old is the most gregarious child I have ever met in my entire life. She loves people. And so a time out to her is hitting her right at her values, right? And what it's doing is I, I've been there once and I've seen it happen. And it's, it's something I don't take joy in, but I couldn't look away from. And so he said, we're going to go to time out. And just the word, she knows, it, she knows what it meant. They take her and they put her in a corner in the same room, mind you. And he is sitting next to his daughter for the two minutes that this thing's in a time out. And she's freaking out, right? Because he said, I'm going to take that which you value and take it away from you. And when you do that, you control the person if you have the same value set. When Jesus comes in and says, I know you've got any power, but we don't. So then when they use their power to take away power from Jesus in the ways that they saw it as powerful, he said, yeah, that doesn't bother me. You have no control over me or my family. A loss, if we don't see the same values, then we lose control over the people we're trying to control. It's kind of like when kids grow up. And they finally realize that as a parent, you really don't have much control over them because you can't do much once they become independent, you know? It's the fear of every parent with teenagers. Is I've talked to them. They just say, if they realize that I really can't do much, <laughs> I can ground them. But if they don't mind being grounded or they don't want to be, I, I, I can't stop them from being them if they don't value what we value anymore. If they don't value the car that I give them, the phone that I buy them, if they don't value the school that I want them to go to, and I take that away, I have no control over them. What Jesus did was he said, I will remove the values that this world has, give my family new values, and in doing that, it threatens the control of the establishment, essentially. He's saying we share different things. And so the Pharisees responded, Rome responded, people responded as though Jesus was threatening them. That's why they got so mad when he lived in mercy in a power-centric culture. That's why they got so mad when he said, yeah, I'm not going to use religion to manhandle my people anymore. He said, that's not what we're about. They saw it as a direct threat to the way they did life because he exposed what they really valued. He says, my kingdom is different. So, so as we live out these good ways in God's good world, in God's design, what we see is that it bucks up against the value system of the system that's already here. And people get scared because they can't control us. Because we're saying we're different. 
Saying we're different. That's what Jesus means when he says, you are in the world and not of the world. You're living in this space, but you have different values. Different things control your actions. You seek after different things. And when he says, don't let those things control you or value you, what he's saying is, live into my way of life and use my currency. Initially, why people are persecuted because of their faith in the Old Testament, and I think right here, right now, is because when we buck up against the system, we expose what they really value, and then they lose control over the people of God when they realize that we don't value the same things. And it leads to persecution. That's what happened to Jesus. And so it says in our text that they got angry and they rebuked him, and then it grows from there as he bucked their value system again and again and again and again, up to the point when they finally killed him. Uh, it's this interesting principle that we are in this world but not of this world. We are distinctly different from it. And that's what the Beatitudes are pointing towards. And then he says, because you're different, people are going to fight back against it. But don't forget that you're different. My grandfather was a pig farmer. And it's as exciting as it sounds in Iowa. And I remember as a kid, I don't know if you've ever been to a pig farm. It's a great it's a great trade. I mean, I, I loved it. Put food on the table for my dad, and I had a lot of bacon as a kid growing up. It was amazing. And I remember over all the other things, going to the farm in Iowa as a kid is I'd come from Dallas to the pig farm. There's a couple thousand heads of or whatever you group pigs at pigs in these pens. And the first few days were a little rough. By, by rough, I mean that you go to the house, and it had a distinct smell, Right? And the smell was not something that you inhaled joyfully, you know? The smell was more like, oh my gosh, this isn't great right here, right now. But you know, the tough part is that after day three or four, you didn't really notice anymore. The point of the Beatitudes is saying, don't forget that you're breathing different air, that your currency is different than the world around you. He's saying, don't forget that you are different. And when people saw that, they responded with violence. They, they pressed into the ways that they use to control people. It's why when Jesus is persecuted, he presses into the value system of his family. We're going to see that at the end. So what he says is, blessed are those of you who are persecuted. That word persecuted um, tells us a couple things. The first thing, that word persecuted has a large synaptic range. It means, it means a lot of different meanings. It's not just persecuted means you get punched in the face or you get beat up or you die. That word persecuted can mean it's broad for a reason. It literally just means pursued. Um, and it's kind of like I had a dog that would hunt with me when I'd go pheasant hunting. And this dog, once she saw a bird, she would not let it go. We had an electric shock collar on her, right? And she was a stubborn, stubborn dog, fit right in with the Ridenauer family. And when she saw a bird, she would take off. The problem with pheasant hunting is, if your dog gets too far ahead of you, they kind of ruin it for everybody else, because you are walking and scaring up birds. So if a dog gets too far ahead, the birds are scared up too far out. You can't shoot them, right? Because we're bringing peace to the world as Christians. So... <laughs> literally, um, Sadie, my dog, would run so fast and so far because she saw a bird and she wouldn't let it go. I'd be sitting there with a shock collar, hitting high as many times as I could, and it didn't matter. She'd shake it off and keep running, right? She would pursue that bird until the bird was gone. When it says, blessed are those who are persecuted, you get that image in the Greek of something that is pursued relentlessly. It's harassed and it won't be letting go of. We see another thing about it too, it's when Jesus uses that term, it's in um, a Greek tense called the perfect tense, and what that means is it is a completed action that has present day results, 
or present day consequences. So it'd be like if I went to Thanksgiving on Thursday at my mom's house and I said, hey, how you doing? I made a pumpkin pie, right? I don't know why people do that. Pumpkin pie is gross. That's another conversation. Um, I just do that for shock value, you know? The worst thing you could do is all make me pumpkin pies, right? But um, really though, I, if, if, if I go there and say, hey mom, I made a pumpkin pie. The, the idea is I made a pie yesterday or this morning, past tense, and we get to enjoy the consequences of it right here, right now, today. That's the perfect tense. He's saying, blessed are you who are persecuted, past tense, and you will forever feel the effects of something that happened back then, but it's not positive, it's negative. What he's saying is that persecution is relentless, and he's saying it's not going anywhere. And sometimes, and sometimes when we talk about persecuted, I'm going to go on a small rant on prosperity gospel. When Jesus says that we're persecuted, actually, Timothy says it as well. He says, now, in fact, all who want to live godly lives, Paul says this, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. There's no if, there's no maybes. For followers of Jesus, the question is when we are persecuted. The prosperity gospel, if you've heard it, is this idea that God wants to bless you and the amount of blessing that you get is dependent upon the amount of faith that you have. It's really popular. The problem with prosperity gospel, well, there's a lot of them. One of them is that the chief end of your faith is not God and his glory. It's you and your goodness, your stuff, your blessings. Two, it fundamentally ignores the broken world idea. It fundamentally ignores the story of scripture that we've read so far. Prosperity gospel says that if we live into our faith enough, our lives get only one direction better. But the blessedness we're talking about here talks about how we're blessed even if our lives don't get better. Because you know who had more faith than me? The disciples. (laughs) You know who probably lived into the ways of Jesus a little better than me? The disciples. And do you know how their lives ended? Let's talk about James for a sec. The brother of Jesus, he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And a few years after Jesus died, they got mad at him because he bucked the system of their power. They took him to the top of the southeast portion of the temple and they threw him off of it. And he fell 100 feet to the ground. He didn't die. They found him at the bottom and so they took big clubs and they beat him till he did. Let's talk about the fact that four or five of the disciples were crucified, two or three were beheaded, a couple were run through with spears. Let's talk about the fact that not one of the disciples met a fate that we would deem as easy. The worst one, as a highly extroverted person, was John, who was left on an island all by himself, right? Throw me off a building, please. If you believe in prosperity gospel, you have to ignore the fact that giants of our faith died in pretty awful ways because the world is broken and sometimes peace doesn't always end in peace, you know? And so when it says blessed are those who are persecuted, what he's saying is that persecution will exist. It will exist in the life of a believer, which brings me to here and now. If it will exist, what does it look like for you and me? And the first thing I think about is let's define persecution for what persecution is. Sometimes we ascribe the idea of persecution to things that it's not. And I'll just say that. So if somebody at Starbucks tells you happy holidays and not Merry Christmas, you are not being persecuted. Let's start there. All right. I'm sorry. I know it might offend some people. If they schedule a soccer game on a Sunday morning, they're not persecuting you for their faith. That is just a changing of your tradition. And that's just fine. You might not like it, but you're not being persecuted. Let's reclaim that word for what it actually is because there are people in this world that are dying for their faith. 
And the first thing I think about is let's reclaim the word for what it actually is, not trivialize it by talking about how people change some words here or there that don't really matter. And let's remember how blessed we are living right here in this space because you drove this place today and nobody tried to stop you. There's an organization um, and it's called Open Door USA. It tracks how hard it is to be a Christian in the worst 50 countries in the world. And they said, and this is from 2018, they said that 215 million Christians face significant levels of persecution. One in 12 live where their faith is illegal, forbidden, or punished. There was a report that came out last year that studied Christianity over the last two years from 15 to 17. And they said that in these countries, China, Egypt, India, Iran, Iraq, Nigeria, North Korea, Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Sudan, Syria, and Turkey, over the last two years, the research showed that in that time, Christians suffered crimes against humanity and were hanged or crucified in some instances. It says the report found that in all countries but Saudi Arabia, the violence towards Christians was just getting worse. And the only reason why it wasn't worse in Saudi Arabia was because they said, and I quote, it couldn't get any worse to begin with. There are people in this world that die for their faith. There are people for this world that actually suffer persecution. The Center for Study of Global Christianity, it's an academic research center. It said that from 2015, uh, 2005 to 2015, they estimated 900,000 Christians were martyred. It's 90,000 a year. This is blessed are those who are persecuted. The place where I want to start, the place where I want to start is by recognizing the difference between us and them. By recognizing the difference between being allowed to drive here and not being able to read a Bible in public. A couple months ago, I was driving to work on a Sunday morning, and I was driving on 407, and I got pulled over by the police, because I, uh, I drive passionately, and <clears throat> like, like all things I do in life, and I was driving very passionately that day, and he pulled me over, and uh, he said, hey, uh, you were going a little fast, and I said, yeah, he said, where are you headed, and I said, I'm just going to work, and, <laughs> and he said, where do you work, and I said, I'm a pastor, I did the head tilt, <laughs> you know, I said, I'm a pastor, and he said, oh, okay, what church, I said, Crossroads Bible Church, he goes, all right, man, you slow down and you have a good day, all right? <laughs> and I said, thank you so much, right? My point there is not to use Jesus to get out of tickets, but hey, God is good. My point there, <laughs> my, my point there is simply that we don't live in those countries that persecute us for our faith, and sometimes our faith helps us in ours. And, and the first thing we have to recognize, because we gravitate towards this thing's going down in a burning ball of, we gravitate towards woe is me all the time, maybe we just need to stop and be thankful that God put us here incredibly thankful that God put me here. And we need to recognize that persecution exists in this world in places that I don't have to deal with, I don't have to think about, and that is a beautiful grace of God. So it gives me joy, it gives me encouragement when I read this verse. It says, hey, I will suffer, but I'm just so thankful I don't suffer in those ways. And I might one day, but right now I don't. And I attribute that to God being good to me when he didn't have to be. But secondarily, I want to also differentiate the fact that, that we do suffer for our faith in different ways. I just think it's much smaller ways. So to say that we don't suffer at all because we live in America, I think, is a fallacy. But to say that we suffer all the time is also a fallacy. It'd be like if we go around on Thanksgiving morning because we don't eat till after the Cowboys game and say, I'm starving. You're not starving. You're just hungry. There's a difference because people actually starve. But you are hungry, and it points towards something. My point is that we do suffer for our faith. There was a couple of years ago, actually... Wow, good Lord, I'm getting old. It's 10 years ago now. And 
I, um, I used to be able to say a couple years, and it was always a couple years. It was like 18, you know? And now, uh, it was before I started at Crossroads. I graduated from Moody Bible Institute, and I graduated from Wheaton College with a master's in theology. And I really, really didn't want to work at a church because I had some baggage there. And so, you know, I told the story before, I drove trucks across the country. And I really wanted to work in San Francisco or D.C. because I'd lived in San Francisco, I had family in D.C., and I loved the coasts. And so I had a job interview, a second interview, with this company in um, a nonprofit in San Francisco that had nothing to do with Jesus. They didn't know Jesus, they didn't want to know Jesus, and they just provided meals for homeless people. And I was like, this would be really cool because I wanted to work in the nonprofit space, but had some problems with churches that I'd worked in. Mostly my fault, probably, right? So... They called me and they said, hey, Charlie, we've looked at your resume. And again, I had my master's degree. It was an entry-level position. I was more than qualified. And she said, we're going to be calling you at 2 o'clock on Thursday, whenever it was. I said, great. Look, part of growing up is knowing what you're good and bad at. just is. I'm not bad at carrying a conversation with people, you know? I'm just not bad at it. I'm good over the phone. I can do it one-on-one. I get on the phone with this person, and she made up her mind pretty clearly before we even started this interview that she did not like me, you know? She was not kind to me. She said short, small sentences that were borderline rude, and she did not laugh at my witty, witty sense of humor, okay? Um, and so I knew, I, got a, I remember getting off the phone. My mom is an HR director. She has been for 30 years, and I said, hey, it was really weird. I said, it was, I mean, I tried the best I could, and I'm, I'm not the best at this thing, but I'm not bad at interviews, and nothing that I did brought any kind of levity or opened it up at all, or it's like she made her mind up before I even interviewed, and she said, yeah, what did you think was going to happen? I said, what are you talking about? She said, where did you go to college? I said, Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. She said, you went to two conservative evangelical colleges, and you applied for a liberal organization in San Francisco. What did you think was going to happen, right? I said, that makes sense, (laughs) you know? My point is simply that we still suffer persecution. It just looks different. It looks like we lose promotions. It looks like we might not get interviews. It looks like we might not get jobs or we might lose friendships. It looks like those things. Because what we say is that we don't value what our world values. And so when he says, blessed are those who are persecuted, he's saying, my family is going to experience persecution because you kick back against the value system of the world in which they use to control everybody. And we experience it in small ways, not big ways. And so we need to recognize that and lean into the blessedness of the persecution part while at the same time realizing there's a difference between the different levels of persecution that's experienced by Christians in our world. And he said, blessed are those who are persecuted. And the next part is for for righteousness. And I love this part. He says, for righteousness. And what he does when he says for righteousness is essentially what he's saying. He's defining why they're persecuted in the first place. And in the next verse actually defines this verse for us. Sometimes we can get big systematic definitions from theological words like righteousness. But what Jesus does is he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness. Read on in verse 11. If you wonder what that is, he says, blessed are you when people insult and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. He's describing in more detail verse 10. He's saying, blessed are you who are persecuted. Verse 11, here's what persecution might look like to you. And then he says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness. Verse 11, more detail because of me. What Jesus is doing is defining righteousness as who he is in his character. And I love that because sometimes a simple definition is all we need. 
When I think of manliness, I think of my buddy John. When I think of passion, I think of my grandma Norma. When I think of compassion, I think of my grandfather Don, who was, also was a pastor. I think sometimes when we think of righteousness simply as the person of Jesus, it helps us talk about it, it helps us picture it, it helps us explain it, it helps us live it out. What he's saying is, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness. If you want to know what that is, look at who I am. Read the red letters in your Bible and follow it. Follow Jesus, make disciples. He's saying, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness, which brings me to my second caveat of the day, maybe third, I forget. Let's be people that are persecuted for righteousness, not for our stupidity, okay, right? I think sometimes, and I'm gonna tread lightly here, I think sometimes we are like the Pharisees and we use persecution as a barometer of how much we love Jesus and we seek it out, you know? I think we say, look how much I'm persecuted, I'm being beat down for my faith, when really what he's saying is you're persecuted because of you're just following me. I think of Daniel in the Old Testament. He was living under a king and the king made it illegal to pray to anybody but the king and Daniel said, I follow Jesus. So what Daniel didn't do was go in the temple court and say, I follow Jesus, woe is me, I'm being so persecuted. He went to his room and he prayed. And then when he got found out, he said, I went to my room and I prayed because I follow Jesus. He didn't seek it out, but when it came to him, he was willing to endure it. A couple months ago, actually in September, China is one of those countries that you can't practice your faith out loud. And just this morning, somebody told me this story backstage. They said, I'm on this blog with um, people from China because they adopted a kid from there. And she said, in September, 344 pastors wrote a letter to the Chinese government and said, we're sick of being persecuted for our faith. We're sick of not being able to talk about it in our homes to our family. We believe that we're called to live with the ways of Jesus. And then they said, and we're going to keep doing that. They said, we respect the authority of the government that God has placed above us, but we will walk in the ways of Jesus. And then they signed their names. They signed their names. That's a no-go in China. And as Christians... What we have to realize is as followers of Jesus, we should never seek out persecution, but we should be willing to endure it. And there is a difference. We're persecuted for following Jesus. Carson says it like this. These verses neither encourage seeking persecution nor permit retreating from it, sulking, or retaliation. Blessed are all of us who are persecuted for righteousness. And then he ends it with, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. There's an inclusio there. So if you look at the Beatitudes as a whole, verse three through verse 10, he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he ends it with, blessed are the persecuted, because it's gonna get you persecuted if it doesn't make peace, for theirs also are the kingdom of heaven. He's saying, this is my bookend. You people belong to me, and you have something that can't be taken away even if you're persecuted. Jim Elliott was a missionary, and he died for sharing Jesus with an indigenous tribe in Ecuador. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jesus says, hey, in the middle of persecution, when it feels like all is lost and you can't hold on to your job or your families or even your life, know that I've given you a kingdom that no one can take away. He's shifting your perspective in a moment of pain that persecution often brings. He's saying, blessed are you who are persecuted for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And let me tell you, it says, um, well, in 1 Peter, he talks about persecution as well. It says, 
but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's this idea that, that blessing and persecution, that joy and persecution goes side by side. I think there's a couple reasons if you find yourself in the middle of persecution to be joyful. One is what Peter says. It's that we join in the sufferings of Christ. And there's a beauty in that even if it's difficult. There's a pride in that even if it's difficult. There's a sense of belief that it's worth it even if we lose things. A couple weeks ago, I got done teaching and uh, a friend of mine who has young kids walked up to me and said, Charlie, I just, I just want to tell you how proud of you I am. I said, thanks. She said, you just look so tired up there today. And I said, <laughs> I said, I said, okay. She said, no, I just... It just shows me that you're one of us now. You have a child. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's true. That's true, right? It's this idea that you've joined in our suffering, but it's worth it. So when we experience persecution, we get to join in the suffering of Jesus. And then in verse 12, again, he expounds on it in verse 12. And he says that we get to join this list of people like the prophets who came before us. And it goes in line with what we talked about. The story of the Bible has always been, because we live in a broken world, one where the values of God might not necessarily lead towards peace, even though they're showing people what peace is. The first time you see it is Cain and Abel, first brothers in the Bible. One lives into righteousness and threatens the power structure that Cain wanted to bring, and he kills him. And then you go to Joseph, and you go to Moses, and you go down the line to Isaiah, and you go to the first century world. We talked about Daniel, you see these people that are persecuted because they live into the ways of Jesus. And what he's saying at the end of verse 12 here is your company's pretty good. Take joy in that. Like if you're going to be surrounded by people, these are the people you want to be surrounded by. So even though it's probably painful, know that your company is amazing. And may that bring you joy. We share in the sufferings with Christ. We join a beautiful group of people who have suffered alongside of him that we want to be in the middle of. And then finally, I think when he says yours is the kingdom of heaven, it's proof that God isn't done yet. It, it, it shifts our perspective towards the things of God. He, he's saying that it's proof that conflict exists because I'm still working. Remember that, that I'm not done. The first martyr in the scriptures in the New Testament after Jesus is a guy named Stephen in Acts 7. You don't know the story. He speaks out for Jesus to a group of Jews. He calls them all out and says, you guys have misinterpreted this and Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. They didn't like it. And so one by one, they took their cloaks off and they laid them at Saul's feet, soon to be Paul. And um, they picked up rocks and they started to stone him. And, and I love his response in the middle of that. He is being stoned, which means he's about to die. And it's not a fast death. It's not a slow death. It's just an awful, painful death. And he says this in Acts chapter 7. Stephen's response was, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees while being stoned, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. See, the Beatitudes are a reflection of God's values. And what I love about the Beatitudes, it comes down to this idea of blessing. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And each and every week we've talked about blessing as being more than just the here and now, more than just the accumulation of stuff, more than just happiness, but sustaining joy as we press into and live into the principles of God. We've literally defined blessing as to be blessed is to find fulfillment aligning your practices with God's principles. What I love about Stephen here is in the middle of persecution, which is terrible, he's losing his life. He doesn't respond with power. He doesn't respond with control. He responds with prayer for people that need Jesus because he's poor in spirit. 
because he's meek, because he's merciful, because he hunger and thirsts for righteousness, and because he's a peacemaker. What he does in the middle of a horrible situation is press back into the family rhythms of God, and in that he finds joy, even though there seemingly is no joy to be found. Because God calls us to live out his values in a world that needs to see him. We see the same thing with Jesus. As I was thinking through um, kind of what I would do in the middle of persecution, and that's always a tough question because I don't think you can make that decision until you're there, you know? Jesus is hanging on a cross. And he says in the middle of hanging on a cross, this is God. Keep that in mind. He can do what he wants and still be God. He's perpetually defining what God is at this point. And so God is justified. Jesus is justified. If on the cross he says, I'm done with this. You guys don't deserve this anyway. I am out. Because there's a lot of pain going on there. And he's on the cross and he's bleeding out for the people right in front of him. And they're bartering over his clothes and they mock him relentlessly. And they say, if you're really God, come on down. And instead of using power to fight power, he presses back into the family values that he came to show us. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not, they know not what they do. And he prays for them in the middle of it. It's this beautiful example that as the people of God, we're supposed to live out the values of God all the time, even when we're persecuted. And the hard part is sometimes that's exactly where it leads us. But as we do it, we get to show people what it looks like to be a part of the family of God. We show glimpses of heaven in our world. There was a, a writer in the 17th century, and he wrote about a theologian. It was a good friend of his after he died. And he said this about the theologian, of this blessed man, let this just praise be given. Heaven was in him before he was in heaven. I love that. When Jesus says blessed are, that's what he means. Live out the family rhythms of God so that people might see bits and pieces of heaven because their values are different than those around you. And it might lead to conflict, but when it does, press back in because this is what we value, you know? So we're going to end today with communion. We're going to end today with communion because it's a good picture of people that have been persecuted, of Christ that was persecuted. We're going to end today with communion because it's a picture of his value that says, I'm going to give up in order to gain that says, I'm going to look past the here and now and have an eternal perspective. We're going to end with communion because it reminds us of God's greatest value, which is his grace towards us. And as we take communion, and it's all gluten-free bread, as we take communion, I, I just ask that you pray, one, how have you seen the family values of God reflected in your life and in our world? And two, if you're going through persecution, what does it look like to press back into those things and show people glimpses of heaven in the here and now? Let me pray for us. Let's take some communion together. God, I'm thankful for your values in the midst of chaos. I'm thankful that even when we live out your ways, if it doesn't go our way and we're persecuted, that you said press in and double down. And I'm thankful that I see that in the person and work of Jesus. And so as I find it extremely difficult to do in my life, might I reflect on Jesus and follow his example? Might that lead my way of righteousness? And as we take communion now, I pray that we're reminded again of how Jesus dealt with persecution and it encourages us as we go from this space. We pray these things in his name. Amen.